You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. On a recent episode of the Vox podcast, The Weeds, hosts Dar Lind and Dylan Matthews were joined by Annie Lowry, who recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic called The Time Tax. This is a term used to describe the effort it takes to receive government benefits in the United States. The paperwork, the documents, the phone calls, and a long list of other hurdles, all to get money and services that Uncle Sam has promised his people. The time tax also disproportionately affects low-income Americans. A portion of that conversation covers a group called Code for America, which is working to lessen this bureaucratic burden, and we'd like to share it with you now. Your most recent piece was on Code for America and their approach to the time tax and trying to lower burdens for low-income people to, to access programs. Tell me a bit about their strategy and sort of how how successful it is and, and how much you can actually just sort of do as programmers. So Code for America, it's interesting because they start, you know, it was like, gosh, more than a decade ago now. And they're doing these kind of like neat municipal programs. So like one of the first things they do is this like adopt a fire hydrant, dig out your local fire hydrant, like community type thing. And they've become essentially like a an administrative burden focused social justice organization. And they create really nice, generally web native tools, often mobile first tools to help folks navigate the government. So to do things like if you have a criminal record that could be cleared, they'll do kind of like automatic clearing, um, which will make it easier for you to get housing, a job, that kind of thing. And people often don't do it for themselves despite the benefits. Or they'll create really great interfaces so that it's easy to sign up for like the child tax credit, that kind of thing. And two things that I really like about them. One is that they have um, a hiring initiative so that they get people who've used these programs um, um, actually work there and they try to stay really close to end users. So they're constantly running surveys and talking to people, um, including folks who are unhoused or homeless or um, very low income about like, okay, what do you not understand about this? How are you going to get that? And the second thing is they understand that actually web-based and mobile-based tools are not going to work for everybody. So like if you're a 54-year-old person who's just not very web savvy and doesn't have the internet in your house and you don't have a laptop and you still have a flip phone, it's going to work a lot better for you, for you to like get on the actual like landline telephone and talk to somebody. And so the sort of theory behind Code for America is, okay, if we can get the people who can use web tools to use web tools, states will have more resources to devote to those people that need that higher touch experience. And that works better for them and is in fact more efficient. Um, even if like we can get a social worker or somebody out to that person, that kind of thing. You know, there's great promise to this. And uh, the problem, though, is that, like, they can't change the underlying guts of anything. They 
cannot rewrite forms that are sort of set out by a regulatory process with rules that come from the states and the federal government. They're kind of like that. They sit on top of the problem, I think, is one issue. And the second is that, you know, I think that they're moving in this direction, but they're very often not the vendor who is um, administering or creating the like web forms and the back end for the state either. Again, they sort of sit in this middle layer in between. Um, so there's a lot that they can do. And they've started to do, I think, a lot more advocacy for, you know, like fixing things at the root. So it's this funny thing where I think that there is a lot of promise, but I think that they'd be the first to tell you that if you really want to make a lot of change, you got to you got to vote this stuff in and you have to change the administrative process up at the top. This really does strike me as kind of the core of a solutions discussion, because like it's something that is that I don't want to understate. But at the same time, in conversations that I've had with vendors who are very thoughtful about this stuff, with people who are in government or who have been in government who are very thoughtful about this stuff, I think what they're really worried about is that the message that it can't be fixed unless the political branches fix it can get overstated when, in fact, it's not just like tinkering around the edges. And I think that something that you mentioned in the first segment is really relevant here, because when you have not just the split between the legislators and chief executive who enacted the policy and the regulators who are supposed to be enforcing it, but also, you know, farming it out to contractors, the contractors are given a set of how to administer the program that is itself distinct from the regulations. And so they, you know, you end up with more, more of an ossified sense of what the program can and should be than even the regulation ends up, you know, would have required. And that can make it hard to change things in a way that is difficult to tell whether it's because the statute requires it or just because it's the way it's always been done. Like, it can be hard for the people at the user interface, whether that's like institutions laying themselves over the thing like Code for America or whether it's vendors to know what the distinction is. But like oftentimes, and I think more so with vendors than with Code for America kind of coming in as like an additional party, you can figure that out, right? And like you can figure out what the space is of things that people are going to be resistant to changing because they think of them as being required, but in fact are just the way things have always been done. I think that there's... There's a lot of opportunity for reducing this because, like, there's tons of low-hanging fruit here, and it exists on all sorts of different branches. So, like, there's hard stuff. So, like, I'm a big advocate of the idea that there shouldn't be work requirements in any program. I recognize that that's not going to happen um, for a lot of reasons, but work requirements are the source of a ton of clutch because they're really hard to comply with. And, like, we could talk and endlessly about whether they actually get people to work or not. But like one way or another, it's it's on the margin. And, you know, you tell me why we need to have a work requirement in a nutrition program. So there's, there's stuff like that. Like, you know, work requirements and asset tests, I would just get rid of it entirely. They're just completely pointless um, in my mind. Or, you know, not pointless. They they have a point, but 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 they're hard. <laughs> but, but the point is bad. Of, yeah, but the point is, the point is bad. Um, then there's all sorts of stuff about, like, can you get the back ends talking to each other a little bit more? So a lot of states, they do these kind of, like, single portal type things where, you know, you'll apply. And at least the big programs will kind of be 
in concert. So, you know, if you're getting Medicaid, they'll make sure that you're also getting SNAP. They do this a lot if you have kids, which is really, really important. But I think like doing that sort of like, let's set a standard of income. Let's like fiddle with the requirements on the back end such that they match each other so that we'll know what you should get. Um, because there's tons and tons of safety net programs, but actually really SNAP is is a big one. Medicaid is a big one. Something like TANF cash welfare is really tiny, right? So if you just get the big programs talking to each other, that's going to that's gonna do a lot of good. But then, like, can you just make the applications nicer? A bunch of states have done this, and it's worked out really, really great. A bunch of states are actually in the process of doing this. Can you make states responsible for, like, wait times, for procedural denials, that kind of stuff? Again, there's just lots of ways to make this simpler. Can you make it so that the states are required to have a web and a mobile-first application for people? Because, again, that means that that like people can do it themselves and that gives you more resources to actually get to the folks who can't do it themselves of whom there are also a lot and you know i think that there's also ways to do better public information to make people aware of things um and to uh take more of the burden on the government itself to help people access these benefits it's one of these places where gosh if you put your shoulder in you could really make a lot of changes. Uh, One other thing I would just cite is that, you know, the federal data collection is awful here. So you can go to the OIRA website and because of the Paperwork Reduction Act, they're supposed to be collecting data on how long it takes people to get this stuff. And the estimates are awful. They're garbage. They only apply to certain types of federal paperwork. Government has no idea how long it takes to get stuff. That's an easy problem to fix. Just like run some surveys. You do this, right? <laughs> um, so that's that's one thing too. Um, Migo Ira do some more work. They love paperwork. I... <laughs> There's some really inspiring sort of examples of civic tech being used for this. Uh, your piece yes. goes through some of them. Yep. There was uh, a really great piece about six years ago by Yaren Liu um, in the Times Magazine about the creation of a new CalFresh website to get food stamps mm-hmm. in California. Uh, I really recommend it since it's uh, like your coverage is, is very lucid about the problems, but it's just the story of these guys who are used to coding apps for like normal companies. And they they come up with a website where you can apply to get food stamps, and that's really easy. Like they re- they know how to do that um, to make something that has nice CSS and is well designed and and looks like a, a nice startup. All of their trials and tribulations were weaving through the thicket of legislative dictates, making sure they weren't offending relevant staffers, getting money to do it, and having to choose whether to get money from philanthropies, which is kind of like icky to have these like rich donors paying for government service. Versus like applying for an IT contract and like the IT procurement setup is wildly messed up. Um, I really recommend it as just like a naive go to Sacramento story. Uh, and uh, my friend Dave Gorino is one of the programmers, so I'm biased. But it, it was a good reminder that sort of all of their work is really important. And I, I really admire what Code for America is doing. You do at some level need legislators to step up and and like uh, not the the ties that they've put for people. I think to pull the really big levers, you need Congress and then you need a new kind of regulatory process to come out of that. I was hopeful that when the child tax credit 
happened and now seems to be perished, that there might be more focus on kind of beefing up the IRS as a benefits administrator, which I know is something that Janet Yellen is very interested in doing since so much stuff just gets run through the tax code now and the IRS is not a very adept benefits administrator, but they do have all this data, so they could be a very good one. I think if you were doing sort of like blue sky thinking, you just want to make like if you were starting from scratch, you would just want to, I think, federalize everything and run it through the Social Security Administration. So that's a that's a free idea for a friendly <laughs> legislator in Congress. If you yeah. really, I guess, except for the health programs, probably you wouldn't want to do that. But yeah, the thing about starting from scratch is what I always end up arriving at when I'm thinking about this stuff, because it's not really just about having the bill in Congress that strips out the kind of means testing and the other political and policy obstacles that you've identified. It's preventing every subsequent Congress from then saying, you know what, there was this really high profile case of fraud because the non-custodial parent was applying for things. And then the two parents were like, you know, splitting the difference, blah, blah, blah. And so we're going to add this test. And so in the next Congress, you know, there's someone going to add another test. And like, it requires not just that kind of constant vigilance on the part of the political branches, but even more than that, a willingness to see the the status quo of a program as like, yes, okay, this wasn't something that was designed all at once, but we have to think of it as something that exists all at once now and actually do a 360 and take stock of what we have and all of the ways that it's affecting people. Because even though this is not what anyone would have designed, it is the complete system that we have right now. And I think that there's a real resistance to doing that, because for most government programs that everyone thinks are broken on some level, which is to say most government programs, like it, it can kind of seem self-evident that they're broken and that they should be fixed. And so taking them as they are and saying, what exactly does this do? And can we see this as a single operating organ, even if we didn't really want it to work that way, is something that people just aren't, they'd much rather spend their energy thinking about ways to improve it than taking stock of what's going on. I think that that's absolutely correct. And I think that just starting to think about what is the time tax associated with this as we pass it um, is a question that I think that legislators could ask themselves. So I think all the time about the Sarah Cliff story that she wrote, this is probably like 10 years ago now, about folks who um, got their insurance through the exchanges and were like jealous of folks who got Medicaid and they felt like it was unfair. And in part, that was because Medicaid pay for more stuff more cheaply, right? Because with Medicaid, you don't have a ton of like co-pays and, and, and that kind of thing. But it was also because like Medicaid, you just got it and then you just were insured. You didn't have to go through this whole like giant Rube Goldberg process to get your, to get your insurance. And so um, obviously... Obviously, <laughs> if we want to relitigate how how Obamacare happened, um, nobody nobody thought it was like beautiful when it was passing. But I think it was underestimated how much people would hate having to like actually procure their own insurance. And then notably, like the American medical system, we have not talked about this that much, is like the greatest most annoying source of the time tax for people where everybody is like their own insurance administrator and you have to argue um, to get things covered with your insurer and with your hospital. Um, and it's just a giant, giant 
black hole time suck that really contributes to cost in the medical system also. Um, but yeah, I think I think that you're exactly right. Think about like how we could have things and then also stopping and saying like, how, how annoying is this going to be for people to do? I remember there's like, um, you know, some small program that would, uh, the point was to get people broadband, but it like, it was like a $50 tax credit. And it's like, who is going to bother with this? Some small number of people just provide broadband, just provide broadband, do, you know, do things directly because uh, you're not going to get it to people. And, and it's just really annoying when you do it that way. And I, again, I think the Democrats um, have a little bit to answer for when they're like, okay, we'll set up a complicated tax financing scheme to make sure that, you know, only these folks and blah, 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 blah. And it's just really hard. Yeah. Well, and I think that that breeds kind of a culture in some sort of left of center organizations where sort of any expansion is good and you're in the political process. And so it's going to be messy, but it's a win. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I used to write more about like EITC and and the stuff than I they do now, and I would sometimes bring proposals to like simplify it or make it easier to to get to folks at the center on budget and policy priorities. And I love the center on budget and policy priorities. They 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 do a lot of great work for low income people, but they're very much like let's make the tweak to SNAP that will get that like a hundred thousand more people, like twenty five dollars more in benefits. They're not like big systematic people. And so I think they have sort of an initial fight or flight reaction to any kind of change to programs like this, because it might be a threat. It might be a right wing scheme to like cut and undermine the program. And you you need all these people, you need the people in the, the weeds and the people thinking blue sky. But there was not always an acknowledgement that getting the little incremental win also incrementally makes all of this vastly more complicated for people on the user end. One big theme I think that comes through my work is like government should do more work and people should do less. So it should be the government's job to make sure that people get the EITC. And like if people should be getting the EITC and they're not, like that's a government problem. Like the tax authorities should be able to figure that one out. Because right, it's like one in six. One in six people doesn't get the EITC and it's thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. And again, we know perfectly well that those are mostly people not who are like at the very high end of the income strata for getting EITC. ITC, they're down at the bottom. And so um, once you start looking through this lens, there's just no number of policies that you wouldn't, you know, think about changing in a way that just like let people get them easily and made the government work so that not everything was like the DMV. Although hilariously, a lot of DMVs have gotten a lot better in terms of customer service. (laughs) Yeah, like not to jinx it, but the DC DMV is pretty nice in my experience. (laughs) It's much better than the California. California, I've not had the greatest experiences. DC DMV, I always thought was like actually pretty good, pretty good. I had a I had a also a nice sort of controlled experiment in this as a teenager because uh, I grew up as in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not really a state that has laws, and so they don't do <laughs> they don't do learners permits. You're just allowed to drive at fifteen and a half. And and but I wanted to drive in Vermont because we lived on the border, and so I had to go get a Vermont learners permit. So I got to deal with both DMVs, and the Vermont DMV was just like the nicest human being. Like I want to be friends with Carl still. He was so nice and so helpful. And like the New Hampshire DMV, everyone was underpaid and angry and wanted you to die. <laughs> and it's it's amazing what investing in good civic services can get you. I know everybody hates bureaucrats in the United States. The the U.S. could use a bigger and better funded bureaucracy. It really could. I 
talk to folks who work in these state offices all the time, and they would love just like a computer that works and to make a living <laughs> wage without having to like waitress or do Uber on the weekend. And like, I get why this is a really heavy lift, but like spend more money on this stuff and you just make people's lives easier. I really, really, really do. And you make it such that you don't have to have all these like legal aid societies and homeless shelters and hospitals doing all of this work for the state on behalf of people who are just like perplexed. I also, I like the idea that you're the only young person in Vermont. And that was why, <laughs> yeah, just our, our gentocratic Vermont was like, wow, we have a kid. Get we that have kid. kid. We have to raise him well. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a village to raise Dylan Matthews. We gotta get him in a Subaru. <laughs> This portion of an episode of The Weeds was hosted by Dara Lind and Dylan Matthews. Their guest was Annie Lowry, staff writer for The Atlantic. The episode was produced and engineered by Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is the editorial advisor, and Amber Hall is deputy editorial director of Talk Podcasts. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Thanks for listening. Listening.